Hello, everyone, and welcome. My name is Andrew. And I'm Rachel. And we are Picture the Scene Podcast. We are a true crime podcast aiming to put you, the listener, at the scene of the crime. Each week, we delve into the murky world of lesser-known crimes from the UK and Ireland, and occasionally, we venture into renowned cases from around the globe. Today, I'm discussing what I think is a well-known case, but one that interests me nonetheless, and that I have been wanting to cover for a while. We like, I, I like the fact that you've gone for a well-known case. I mean, I'm intrigued. I don't know what case it is, but uh, I'm gonna, I think I'm going to enjoy this one. Not that I don't enjoy your lesser-known cases, mm-hmm. but I particularly like your take on some of the more popular ones as well. Thank you. And if you like what you hear, please do follow us on whatever social media platform you prefer. Subscribe to us on your preferred podcast platform of choice. And if you have the capability, give us a rating and review as well. It really means the world to us, doesn't it, Rachel? We absolutely love our ratings and reviews. And in fact, whenever we get a new one, Andrew sends me a message always uh, with the first line, sorry to disturb you, but this, but I thought you'd enjoy it. Um, so I always knew, I always know it's good news. Um, so, so yeah, we love it. Did I really say that? I didn't realise. Probably because it's normally about 2 o'clock in the morning or something. <laughs> yeah. You know that I go to sleep at like 8pm. Um, but no, it uh, it is usually like you apologising for uh, disturbing me. And to be honest, I'm never disturbed. So you needn't apologise in future. And we got a wonderful one last night. I actually got notified it last night, but I think it's from a few days ago where... A wonderful lady in America changed her rating, saying that she now understands my voice and she loves the <laughs> podcast. So thank you so much. It doesn't mean a well to us. Yay. And we love America. Woo. We do. And if you like us that much that you want to support us, you can do so for less than the price of a cup of tea or coffee on Patreon with our lowest tier starting at £1 per month. We release bonus content every month. The links to our social medias and Patreon can be found in the show notes or visit patreon.com or slash scenepod. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com or slash s-c-e-n-e-p-o-d. Now we do, where possible, also release our episodes a week early for our Patreon supporters. So you don't have to travel the two short kilometres from Yesterday Island to Tomorrow Island or Inner Bering Strait to jump ahead in time. You just need to subscribe to us on Patreon. Rachel's cheering right now, everybody, because she gave Is me that, that one. I gave you that one, didn't I? You did indeed, yes. Hey. And at, but as with any true crime podcast, listener discretion is always advised. And today, there's definitely no exception. So, Rachel, how are you doing? I'm really good, thank you. We've had our mid-season break, have we? No, no, we had that a while ago, but oh, right, we, okay. we have, we have, but our listeners won't have noticed any break. You can tell who uh, does all the editing and uh, publishing over here, can't you? Um, yeah, we've. I'm fully refreshed. Uh, I had a great uh, couple of weeks off, so I'm really excited to get back into recording today. It feels like it's been a long time, and so much has happened in the world of true crime as well. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to um, getting my bum back on this seat and recording today. Exactly, even the Lucy Letby case, which... At some point in the future, we will cover, won't we, Rachel? Yeah, I'm really excited too. And there are some mega amazing, very in-depth podcasts and uh, one-off kind of roundup episodes out there. So as always, we'll be doing our own take on it. Um, but I have been, like being um, seven months pregnant, um, I wasn't sure whether I would um, dive into this case a lot because of obviously the subject matter. But yeah, it it gripped me um, throughout. So um, obviously the trial went on for a lot longer than my pregnancy. But um, but yeah, over the last couple of months, I've um, I've been like trying to find out as much as I can. And I feel like, yeah, I'd, I'd love to do a case on it, an episode on it um, to kind of like put across my thoughts and opinions, because I really appreciated hearing others. Uh, on the case so yeah coming soon guys coming soon and the question i have to ask though is are you ready for some true crime yes more so than ever i was born ready let's go great so if it's safe for you to do so i'd like you to relax 
close your eyes and picture the scene. Today, I'd like to take us back quite far to the 26th of November, 1991, to the village of Northium, which is in East Sussex. When you said quite far, I was expecting you to say like 1921, not well, 1991. It, it's it's over 30 years now, HL. It is, it is. I, I love that meme. I think I've said it before. Uh, when you think of 30 years ago being the 70s, but 30 years ago is actually now the 90s. Yes, um, indeed. Yeah. So yeah, Northium, it's a small village and it's only got a couple of thousand people living in it with it being just under six miles square in actual size. So it's what you'd expect, especially if you're not British or English. It's what you'd expect an English village to be like from the TV and the films and whatnot. Quaint, yeah. Yes. Midsummer Murders-esque. Yeah, exactly. It's not known for much. The most notable thing to happen to it would be when four prime ministers, Churchill for the UK, King for Canada, Smuts for South Africa, and Huggins for Rhodesia visited the village at the same time on the 12th of May 1944 to pay a surprise visit to the troops who were getting ready for D-Day. That was less than a month away. But, yeah, but I'm not talking about World War II, though, today. But no politician would visit Northium on that cold day in November. In 1991. We're going to go to 10.30 at night, Rachel. So it was pitch black. It was dry, but that was no consolation to those out and about. And the weather was a bitterly 4 degrees Celsius, which is 39 degrees Fahrenheit. And we're visiting Chapelfield Cottage in Northam, which is a charming, grey two listed cottage with three bedrooms and is surrounded by your stereotypical English beautiful chocolate box gardens. These days, a house is worth well over half a million pounds, but even back then, it was worth a cool £160,000. In the 90s, that's impressive. Yeah, it's really nice. At the time, in 1991, the house was owned and lived in by Terry and Jean Daddo, who were 52 and 51 respectively. Neither of them worked. Terry had previously been a financial consultant for Lloyds Bank, but he had taken early retirement a year or so earlier, and he now worked as a freelance financial consultant, but only because he enjoyed it rather than needing to. Jean was previously a hairdresser's assistant, but had stopped working a number of years previously. The pair had met some six years ago, in 1985, in a lawyer's bank in Tenterden, having a purely professional relationship. It began when Jean had her credit card stolen and Terry would end up giving both her and her first husband financial advice. Terry and Jean's professional friendship soon turned into an affair with the pair pair sharing telephone calls and love letters with each other. Terry, he was fond of writing poems for his new lover. That's mad, isn't it? Because that really is a chance meeting. You have your card stolen, you head into the branch. Anyone could have helped her that day, or her card may never have been stolen. She may never have met him. Like, uh, exactly. that really is a, a chance meeting, isn't it? Exactly. Now, they both realized their marriages were in serious trouble. So they decided to stop seeing each other. But according to Jean, now these are her words. But because there was such an incredible magnetism, between us, it was impossible. So it shows like it was your Hollywood film, Love at First Sight. Yeah, yeah. And and the thing is as well, like, they speak of um, when when it comes to affairs, like the addiction, don't they? The thrill. Yes. The addiction to the thrill. And, um, you know, it's all kind of caught up in that romance of like doing something you shouldn't and it being like sordid um which is is quite often what you hear is the difficult part to give up isn't it you know going back to normal life where you're not sneaking about and and making um meetings and seeing you know having a reason to to dress up and yeah meet someone so yeah quickly quickly enough both of their original marriages broke down and they became a couple. They would argue as much, if not maybe more than other couples, 
But on January 6, 1989, they decided to get married. Wanting to be romantic, they headed off to Gretna Green and tied a knot. At the start of 1990, and just for people actually in not in the UK, because we have like maybe half of our listeners are not in the UK. Yeah. Uh, Gretna Green is this romantic place where it's normally young lovers because you can get married before the age of 16, uh, before the age of 18 there, can't you? From the yeah, age calm 16. down. <laughs> yeah, from the age of 16. So normally like young lovers would run off to Gretna Green, which is yeah. which is just in the start of, start of Scotland, I believe. Uh, yeah, so married. it's... It's just just near the Lake District, very like secluded, romantic kind of yeah. area. And as you would imagine, with a name like Gretna Green, there's lots of like quaint, uh, like village esque kind of um, setting. Um, but basically, the the very British version of Vegas is how I would describe Gretna Green. Yeah, that's a good way of describing it. So yeah, they they wanted to be romantic, so they headed off to Gretna Green. And they tied a knot with each other. Now, at the start of 1990, an elderly 92-year-old woman, Anne Burton, who Terry had been financially advising and doing some accounting work for, gave them £200,000 to help them start their marriage properly. Oh, wow. So, I know, exactly. So, on February the 14th, 1990, which is Valentine's Day, they bought a Chapelfield cottage for £162,000 which is why I know how much it cost back then. It's mad, though. Like, he's been her financial advisor probably for a good good period of time. Um, and if he, he worked for a reputable bank, uh, he wouldn't have been able to accept that money. Um, no, yeah, he was at Lloyd's. He was at Lloyd's, right? Okay, interesting. When, when, when she, he began, I don't know when they finished, but or definitely not when they finished, but when he began financial advising her. Um, maybe maybe at that point he'd either actually, left or... No, actually, sorry. Actually, he was still working at Lloyd's. Okay. Time. So maybe at that point there weren't the, the kind of rules and regs that there were in place when I started working in, in the bank. I worked for a large UK bank um, from 2003, and you couldn't even accept uh, like a bottle of wine uh, from a customer at Christmas without you know, registering it on a gifts and entertainment kind of register. Um, but interestingly, like we we had customers um back then who obviously managed like holiday lets, properties, things like that. And it was very um cautious as to whether you were able to like take them up on the offer of, you know, letting a a, a property. Um but you know maybe maybe in the early nineties people gave less shit about Stuff like that. Possibly, yeah. So, yeah, let's skip forward now, though, because that was the 14th of February they bought the house, 1990. Let's skip forward now to the night in question, the 26th of November, 1991. Jean was upstairs, having taken the hot chocolate she'd made for them both to drink in bed, up to the bedroom, and Terry was finishing up downstairs. It was around 10.30pm, and the doorbell went. It was quite unusual for anyone to turn up at the house, Rachel, at that time of night. Expected or unexpected. You imagine so, someone turning up here at half ten at night. All the lights would be out. No one, no one would be awake to answer the door. Yeah, we'd be looking at a ring doorbell. Do I need to answer it or not? But, um, <laughs> I'd be fast asleep, Andrew. I'm not going to lie. But yeah, so so Terry answered the door, and what he saw, he saw a man standing at the door with something in his hand. The man had a 12-bore shotgun in his hand. Oh, my God. That was wrapped up inside of a coat. The man, a Robert Bell. I don't normally tell you the killer straight away, do I? But I am this time. The man, a Robert Bell, lifted the shotgun up, pointed it at Terry, and fired. With oh, one, wow. With one blast, hitting him in the chest, where his heart was, forcing him to fall backwards. Terry either died instantly or extremely soon afterwards yeah I, I can imagine that was uh instant um yeah. and you know for, from the moment of registering what was in front of him to like the point of impact was probably not even long enough to uh compute what was what was going to happen i'd hope yeah. anyway yeah, probably yeah so jean said that she was in shock when she heard the shotgun blast and didn't know what to do 
But after 10 to 15 minutes, she picked up the phone and called an ambulance. 10 to 15 minutes? Yeah. By the time the paramedics arrived at Chapelfield Cottage, Terry was most definitely dead, and there was nothing they could do for him. 10 to 15 minutes? Yeah. It's that fear factor then, isn't it? That, you know, when you're like stunned into, we, and we've seen it before in previous cases, there people are, are kind of like stunned into, you know, carrying on with their normal activities. Maybe she was, she put the hot chocolates down and was brushing her teeth when she heard the gunshot and thought to herself, I definitely didn't hear that. Just carry on and, and he'll come upstairs soon and everything will be normal, but. Yeah, definitely. I mean, he ran away straight away, the killer, but actually what oh, she Oh, no, could've... I meant her husband, sorry. No, yeah, oh, yeah. Husband. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. I'll tell you what so, she could have... So the killer, the killer ran away straight away. Yes, but she Obviously, didn't know Obviously, Terry had a target on his head then. Possibly, we'll see. But, yeah, it, and what she could have done, this is the last bit of humour I'll throw into this today, but on Sunday just gone, I was awake and getting ready in the morning, as you do, and I just brushed my teeth. And the day before on Saturday, I had my hair cut. And I was brushing my teeth in, and I was looking in the mirror. And I noticed that the barber had he'd not made my sideburns level. So one was longer than the other. <laughs> so I, I, I said to my wife, I was like, Nikki, am I seeing things here? Or is one of these longer than the other? And she went, no, that one's longer than the other. But grand, doesn't matter. I'll, I'll trim it down myself. And then what I did is, because I'd just been brushing my teeth, I rubbed my eye because I was tired, because I was going to go in the shower afterwards, and I had toothpaste on my hand, and I didn't realise, and it went in my eye. And it's it, it, it stung for like five, ten minutes. It was, de- it was oh, disabilitating. So, so what she could have done, she could have just rubbed toothpaste in the killer's eyes, and he wouldn't have been able to do anything, because it's... it's yeah, I actually thought to myself, if I ever get attacked in the house, I'm getting the toothpaste. It, yeah, that's it, yeah, that's my uh, that's my end game. Yeah, grab the toothpaste. But yeah, anyway, sorry people. But but yeah, so the the paramedics couldn't do anything for Terry. So yeah, I know I've given you the killer's name, Robert Bell, and we'll get to him later. But at the start of the investigation, I did that because the reason I gave you the killer's name, people, because. Well, I know what Rachel would do, and probably a lot of people would do, or automatically go, well, obviously the wife killed him. That's where I thought you were going, because you'd obviously gone out of your way to mention that they argued more than the average couple. My mind is is going somewhere a bit different at the minute. Maybe she's ordered a hit on her husband or something, because yeah. this, this guy's turned up at the house. He's not ransacked the house. He's not, like, he's not gone after the wife. He's not tried to, like, you know, cover his tracks. He, he, potentially leaving a um, witness in the property to to the crime that he's committed, to me, just feels a little bit odd. But yeah, no. I will let you explore. Possibly. I mean, I said that because I said they argued as much, if not more, just to give you the sense that they were just a normal couple, not like... Oh, uh, okay, not they, to they, throw me... Yeah, not that they didn't okay. hate each other or they didn't, like, was all... Fake, I guess just I guess when you meet the way that they did as well, like, and obviously there's like been an affair. There's probably an element potentially of distrust. Also, because this was Jean's second marriage, and this was Terry's third marriage. Oh, Terry gets around. <laughs> yes. So... Sorry, I shouldn't speak ill of the dead. But but yeah, the police, the start of the investigation, they didn't have any clues to go on really. So they started looking at the most common motives people kill for. On the night of the shooting, Jean actually gave them a name. And this name linked into one of the main reasons people kill, money. So that name was Michael Pearson. Now they discovered Anne Burton. Do you remember the 92-year-old who gave Terry £200,000? How can we forget very generous yes. Anne? Her nephew, Michael Pearson, wasn't happy he'd lost some of his potential inheritance. And he'd been very vocal in his unhappiness about it. And he'd gone to Lloyd's Bank to complain, by the way. And they investigated yeah. it, but they said, no, there's nothing wrong with this. And he'd been very vocal, saying that they had conned Anne out of the money, and he vowed to take revenge. So, so yes, yeah, so to answer your question there, he'd actually complained to Lloyd. Lloyd's had investigated it and went, no, it's fine. 
Uh, Terry yeah. didn't do anything wrong here. So yeah, it changed from two to grand to the bottle of wine a lot, didn't it? But but yeah, so he he was very vocal and said he wanted to take revenge. So the question is straight away, was he involved or was it just angry words? Well, the police, they thought they had enough suspicion to swoop in on his home with armed police to arrest him on suspicion of murder. Okay. And this was, I think, that same night or the day after. When they got when they got him to the police station and they interviewed him, the police saw they were back to square one because he had an ironclad alibi. He had spent, I mean, we know it was Robert Bell, but obviously they didn't know it was Robert Bell. He had spent the evening of the shooting in his local pub drinking with none other than the former assistant chief constable of Kent. So right. I think I think that's probably the best alibi you can get. Although he could have still organised it, but he definitely didn't do the actual killing. So secondly, when they thought, well, it might not be money, they looked at jealousy. Right. And they looked at the romantic side of things, given that the pair had been previously married and their marriage began with an affair. Mm-hmm. So they looked yes. at they looked at Terry's ex-wife, his second one, and they found that no, she couldn't have had anything to do with it, so they quickly discounted her. Then they looked at Jean's ex-husband, and while they decided that he too, just like Terry's ex, wasn't involved, it did, though, open up a lot more suspects when they started looking at Jean's ex-husband. It seems that while Jean was married to her first husband, his name was Adam, by the way, she had lots of flings with other men. Now, what made it unusual, though, is that she would move these men into their family home. And then she would tell people, including her husband, that they were paying lodgers, although her, husband, although her husband knew the truth. So, so Alan guessed, or did she say to him, oh, FYI, I'm sleeping with him? No, but I don't think she was very, I don't think she put much effort into hiding it. And they were in the same house and whatnot. So, yeah. So he just, kind hell, of, Jean. he just kind of accepted it. But so when she finally left him with Terry, he wasn't that surprised. And in all honesty, he wasn't that upset either. Oh, right. Okay. I'm guessing Alan was probably grateful of knowing exactly where he stood because he'd have spent years thinking, Will she leave me for this one or whatever? I'd imagine yeah. anyway. Yeah. So the police painstakingly located and interviewed all of the men. Each one was ruled out. None of them could have been involved. And actually, Terry left his wife before Jean left her husband. And for a while, he too was a lodger in Jean's house with her husband. Yes. Brilliant. So... So they knew each other, Terry and Alan, but yeah, Alan definitely didn't kill Terry. So on the 9th of December, Jean even appeared in an appeal to the public, admitted in that appeal that while the marriage may not have been perfect, she loved Terry and she urged anyone with information to come forward. Now, Jean was heartbroken, Rachel. She was in full grieving mode as the weeks turned to a couple of months and the police were starting to fear that they would never find a killer. The message, she even like the message she had put on Terry's headstone, summed it up, and it read, In God's house, but in my heart, your wife, oh. Jean. So Terry and Jean, they looked like your stereotypical, older, middle-class couple, living an almost perfect life. But Rach, you know how much I like a nice spot in my stories. Behind closed doors, not always as it seems. The police actually suspected Jean, but they couldn't prove anything. I knew it. They even nicknamed the couple, the police that is, Terry and June, after the famous sitcom of the time with the same name about a happy middle-class couple. Now, it seems that the couple had a bit of a darker side. Several old women who were former clients of Terry would come forward claiming that he had conned them, persuading them to give him money, using convincing stories. The fraud squad looked into these, and even though a pattern emerged that he did receive a lot of gifts from former clients, 
Nothing could ever be proved that he actually conned them. When the police searched their home, they found evidence of a plan, just a plan though, not evidence of anything else that actually happened, but a plan that Terry had made that he would drug his older female clients when they were knocked out. He was then going to take compromising photographs of them nude, and then he would use those photographs to blackmail money out of the women. Now, they say they didn't find any evidence, maybe that's what he actually did, but they found a plan for that. So, and when they searched the house, the police did find lots of nude photographs of Terry, Terry and Jean and sex tapes, but they found nothing to say he actually went through with that plan. That doesn't mean to say he didn't, but he didn't find any proof. Now, he's gonna, yeah, you're going to love this. You think this is mad. Wait till what happens next. What also muddied the water somewhat was a newspaper announcement that Terry had made that was actually published in the local newspaper, The Wilden Advertiser, and it read as follows. I'm reading this verbatim here. Okay. Dado, Terry Jean. Because of malicious gossip, would like it known they are happily married and together. All have been proved by solicitors, etc. Not, and not within capital letters, by the way, guilty of fraud, theft, or senality. Thanks to a few true friends who believed in us, perhaps the rest could find themselves to criticise or work for their sick minds. What? Yeah, so this is obviously like before the internet. So, uh, well, how are you going to tell everyone like to be quiet and they're wrong? This is yeah. This is a Facebook update status in the nineteen nineties in yes. in the local cloth. Yes. This is funny. So, so what was that all about? The police thought that's not something that people would normally do. No. Was Jean really involved? Now it didn't really matter what the police thought if they had no proof. And it seemed that they really didn't have any proof. Jean would explain the newspaper announcement because she said that both her and Terry had become extremely sensitive to what they felt was unfair speculation about both their personal and business affairs. So they'd spent £14.56 to run that notice for two weeks in a local paper. Two weeks? Yes. Wow. You, you know that become gossip, wouldn't you? And now an eyewitness would say that they passed a man hanging about in the lane just next to the Dado's cottage that was wearing gloves, jeans, a green coat, and was about six foot tall. So towards the end of January 1992, so a couple of months after it happened, a break would happen, Rachel. And it would come out of the blue for the police. A woman who would actually turn out to be Robert Bell's partner you remember the actual killer of Terry? She would voluntarily turn up at the police station to tell them that she was sure her partner, Robert, had killed Terry and that he had been hired by Jean and her son, Roger, to kill him. Told you. <laughs> yeah, she <you> did. <laughs> sorry, sorry. That, that, no, I don't mean it like that, but you know when you get, you know when you get an inkling... Yes. And I I've, I know you said it might be a well-known case, but I'd not heard of this case before, so. Oh, good. That's good. Maybe not everyone has then. So I'm not sure what information she could give them, though, but they definitely took her claim seriously. You know, what, you know what's mad? In this, in this, back in 1991. Yeah. You've got a early 50s woman trying to locate someone that's willing to kill. Yes. What? Where on earth did she go? How? Like, you know, did she take out some secret squirrel? I get you. We'll get to that. Advert in the local paper. Oh, oh right. I, I can't. I can't actually explain all of this. But yeah, no, you're right. How would you? Even like now, I think to myself, like, how will you do it? Like, how would you? Well, find people someone? go on the dark web, don't they? Or they get in touch with people through like, you know, contacts that you know have they have in the drug world, or you know. You you just find like your dodgiest friend, wouldn't you? And be like, hey, looking for somebody to do a job for me. Can you point me in the direction? Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. But back then, like, you know, they're in their fifties, living in this quaint village. It's it's mad. It's mad. I'll I'll let you crack on this. Sorry. No, that's fine. You're right, and like you you you're exactly right. Yeah. You, how did it happen? But so the police, yeah, they took the claim seriously. 
and they went ahead and arrested both Jean and her son, Roger. Now, now, Roger was a son from a previous marriage, and he was 22 years old at the time of the murder. They were not able to arrest Robert because he had initially left the country after Terry's murder, first oh. going to the United States before, before moving up to Canada. The police would hold both Jean and Roger for 36 hours, interviewing them, but they both stuck firm to their stories. They didn't have anything to do with the murder, and they didn't know who Robert Bell was. Now, after 36 hours, the police didn't have enough to charge either of them, so they released them on bail, pending further investigations. Now, rather strangely, Rachel, if this story couldn't get any stranger, it does a little bit. Rather strangely, the police officer in charge of the investigation, a detective superintendent, called Robert in Canada. And he just said to him, he asked him to come back to England so he could be questioned and cleared if he was innocent. And do you know what Robert did? Came back. He came back to England. <laughs> Why? But yeah. Um, so, so who was Robert? Well, he was 33 when he killed Terry and he had previously spent time in both the British Army as an engineer and after he had left that job, he then joined the Foreign Legion before returning to the UK. He loved skydiving. Some would say he was a skydiving fanatic and he considered himself to be somewhat of a smooth-talking con man. I mean, once even food Nissan, the company, the car company, to hire him as an IT expert on a £50,000 a year job, which is this was like the late 80s, even though he knew nothing about computers. I mean, like people like that, you've got to admire their like tenacity. Yeah, of like, you know, going out of their way to convince such a large corporate company that they can be employed and then the balls like turn up on the first day and and, do it, you know, try and do a job like that. It's mad, isn't it? Yeah. These days you'd just be asking like ChatGPT. Yes. All of that shit, wouldn't you? But thirty years ago, God, Google didn't even exist. I'd be fucked. Yeah. Bear returned to the UK and unsurprisingly, he was subsequently arrested when his plane landed in London. What he had to tell the police was fascinating, Major. He said that Gene's son Roger was a drug dealer and that they knew each other. Boom, what did I say about drug dealers? He he said that for months, Roger had been giving him free hash on a regular basis. What he thought was just a friend being nice to him. But there was an ulterior motive. He said that in early 1991, Roger suddenly demanded that he pay him £700 for all the hash that he had smoked and that there would be a weekly... 100% 100% interest rate on what he owed until he paid it off. Oh. Now, Robert was older, he was bigger, and he was stronger than Roger. He had been in two different armies, but he said that he was scared of Roger. So when Roger suggested an alternative, he listened, and he agreed to meet with him and his mum. He said that he had met with Gene and Roger, and they offered to wipe his drug debt. And they gave him, and then and then on top, gave him twelve thousand pounds. Uh, not only to, will we wipe your drug, drug debt, but we'll we'll set you up for, yes. you know, fleeing the country and probably a year's worth of like hash on your own. Yes, to prove they had the money, Gene pulled out a shoebox full of money. Robert said that he agreed to kill Terry, but he said that he never actually intended to. He just wanted to string them both on until he had enough money to pay the drug debt off. And he would say it was Roger who killed Terry. But he did have a fascinating story to tell. He said that on October the 11th of that year, Roger drove Robert to Chapelpool Cottage. Terry, Remember that's Terry and Jean's home? He said that Roger then gave him a helmet to cover his face up and an iron bar to beat Terry to death with. Robert said that Gene had turned the security lights off and left the front door unlocked for him. He then went on to say that he only took three steps up the path before he heard Terry moving about in the house, so he lost his nerve, turned around and ran. He then went on to tell the police that on the 19th of October, Terry and Gene had gone to the west of England to take a little break. Gene had told him 
that it'd be the perfect place to kill Terry as he could blend in with all the other tourists. He admitted that he followed them to Devon and he proved it to the police by being able to describe the hotel that the couple stayed in. But instead of killing Terry, he went to a nearby town and bought a gun that could only fire blanks. He said that he bought that to prove to Gene and Roger that he was going to kill Terry without actually being able to kill him. Gene and her son were now starting to get desperate, he said. He went on to say that they gave him several ways to kill Terry, including shooting him dead as a couple out shopping. Jump, you like this one. Jumping out from a rock on Terry's favourite hiking trail and shooting him dead. All of which he agreed to, but he never did. He then said that Jean told him that she was going to drive Terry to visit her parents and that she'd park so that he had to get out on the roadside of the car. She then told Robert to run him over and kill him as he got out of the car. And now again, Robert was able to tell the police the exact whereabouts of her parents' home to prove that this was true. But again, he said that he agreed to it, but he didn't do it. All right, okay. He then said that poison was suggested. So he visited the home of Terry and Jean and pretended to be a badger conservation expert. (laughs) This just sounds unbelievable. But he said this because Terry was really annoyed with badgers digging in his garden. So this was a good way to get in the house. Can you you imagine being in this interview room and just hearing as this unfolds? I know. How on earth officers can keep a straight face, detectives, like whatever ranking it is that's sat in these interview rooms? And you wouldn't believe it, would you? But he also went to the neighbours' houses as cover, pretending to be a badger conservation expert, and the neighbours were able to confirm this and describe what Robert looked like. So this actually happened, yes. So he said that when he was in the house, pretending to be this badger conservation expert, he passed Gene Gene an envelope that contained ecstasy, speed and LSD, enough to overdose on, and the idea was for her to spike Terry with them so that he would die. It seemed that she did actually do this, but he didn't die. Oh. It just gave him bouts of depression, and it made him very ill. Terry actually wrote to his doctor because he thought he was going mad the next day, telling his doctor that he was seeing things and that he was seeing imaginary wild geese attacking him, obviously from the LSD that he'd been given. Now, a few days before Terry was actually murdered, Robert said that Gene was now becoming really desperate. So he took the inside of a walkman out, he filled it with plasticine, he wrapped it in duct tape, and he left a few wires hanging out. Now, he told Jean that this was a bomb, but she had to wait because he needed to get a remote detonating device. So apparently, she just drove around with this in a car waiting on him. Imagine that, that she just, she thought, oh, I've finally got a bomb. This just gets crazier. And like, yeah. and do you, do you reckon he broke a sweat when he was telling any of these lies? Because like, I mean, yeah. it's so far fetched. It depends how which how good of a con man he was, isn't it? Well, yeah, but he's also relying on them and their sheer stupidity, isn't he? Like, yeah. not to be, yeah. Oh my god, madness! And mad that she drove around with a, thinking she had a bomb in the car as well without a detonator, like putting yeah, your life and, at risk, and, and and what she thought a bomb looked like was. <laughs> a package wrapped in duct tape with some wires hanging out of it. That's to be fair, like... at least he put the plasticine in because, like, all yes. the bombs I've ever seen, they they have that like plasticine type material, don't they? That the wires yes. are all in. But um, you it know what? Though, in her defense, I I do believe you can make a bomb out of a lot of different things, like in the yeah. household. So he should have put like an alarm clock on the front of it as well. Yeah, yeah, just like one of those little timers that you get yes. in the kitchen. Yeah, just just blue tack it on or something. She wouldn't have blinked, would she? Yeah. Um, I don't know. Said... I don't mean to don't mean to jest though. But like, yeah. go back to my point I made earlier about the police listening to this. They must have just been like, "What the flip?" Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and he said that Jean 
told him that she was even happy to lose the car if it meant Terry died. So that means like she was more. Wow. Like, she was like, yeah, I don't mind losing the car if it finally gets rid of him. Like that's how Poor she was Terry. thinking. He would Poor then, Terry. yeah, he would say that as Jean and their son Roger had grown too frustrated waiting, it was then Roger who shot Terry dead, not him. Oh. But we're we're fairly certain it was him because he matched the description of the person who was seen next to the Dado's cottage on the night of the murder. And also don't forget, his partner came forward and said, hey, it was him. And he fled the country after the murder. Yep, yep. He's definitely not covered himself in glory there, has he? No. So on March the 6th, so roughly three months or so after just over, Terry died, three things happened. Gene posted, and we know this from the date mark, a 32-page letter to a reporter. Now, the reporter was, this is how I love this, the reporter was Jay Rayner, who we all all now know as a famous restaurant critic from MasterChef. Okay. But back then, he was just a reporter, and he had been trying to get her to agree to an interview. Now, you think the letter that she sent to the reporter would be confessing everything. But instead, it was just making up a huge story about her and Terry's life together and his death. After she posted that letter, she she also then went home, told her parents she wanted to rest and not to be disturbed, and then she attempted to commit suicide. Oh, shit. Coincidentally, the third thing that would happen would be that the police turned up at her parents' house to arrest her on conspiracy to murder at the same time, because they'd also arrested Robert and Roger on that day. Yeah. Now, her mother initially wouldn't let them in, saying that she wanted to rest and to come back. But the police pointed out that they were actually there to arrest her. So they wasn't going to come back. They would just go inside and wake her up. Imagine the mother saying, no, I'll come back, she's sleeping. It's like, no, actually, could you, could you just leave my daughter to rest? I'm under very strict instructions yes. not to disturb her. So when they got to her room, they found her comatose and she would rush to the hospital. Now, had the police not found her, the doctor said that she would have died. Wow. When she was released from hospital, she would be arrested for conspiracy to commit murder. Roger, her son, and Robert were also charged with the same thing. And Robert was also charged with murder. Now, the trial would last several weeks, with all parties pleading not guilty. Now, I've told you already virtually almost everything that came out in the trial, but I have missed some important parts out. So I'm just going to cover those now. It would come out in the trial that Terry would suffer bouts of depression that resulted in him committing domestic abuse on Jean. She would say this, but it was also backed up by the occasional police visits to the home and also oh, yeah. pe- and also people seeing her bruised on a couple of occasions and also a couple of occasions she had to run to the neighbours to protect herself. Now, she did not say, though, that this is why she wanted him dead because she never admitted to that. One of Roger's ex-girlfriends, remember Roger, her son, yeah. who were actually found by the police, and she testified that before Terry and Jean even got married, she had asked Roger in front of his now ex-girlfriend if he knew anyone who would kill Terry for a thousand pounds. Roger apparently replied, because Roger hated Terry apparently. Why? So Ro- Roger apparently replied, saying, I know someone who would do it for free. Now, it was argued by the prosecution that the reason that she didn't want to divorce him and get a 50-50 split was because she knew most of his wealth came from gifts from older female clients. So she feared that meant that she would get nothing and Terry would get to keep everything. Wow. Police found they found money in the house that she had been withdrawing slowly from a joint account. But along with that, they also found evidence of 30 different bank accounts in her name that she had been slowly transferring all of Terry's money from into her account. So it wasn't in question that Terry 
committed domestic abuse on her, which obviously is not acceptable. But the prosecution provided what they thought was evidence um, that she had been planning this before they even got married to get his money. So therefore, she'd been planning it before the domestic abuse started. So they said the reason why she didn't just divorce him was because she wanted all the money. Wow. So they said, well, obviously, it's not good. The domestic abuse is not an excuse. Yeah, it shouldn't It shouldn't form part of the defence, should it? Yep. So the jury would find Robert guilty of murder. And he would be sentenced to 15 years for that. Life with minimum term of 15 years. And the jury would also found all three of them guilty of conspiracy to murder. And this is what I found interesting, because they would all be given the same sentence for that as well. And they'd all be given 18 years. Oh, wow. All three? Yeah. So they got 18 years, which is technically longer. Well, not technically. Well, technically it's longer than what Robert got for murder. Obviously, they didn't get life of 18 years, so they'd be out in two thirds. But, um, but yeah, technically, Robert got a longer sentence for conspiracy to murder than he did for murder. That's mad. I guess there is an element if you if you to believe um, the the story that he you know he was putting the hitman through hell, really, wasn't he? Yeah, it, it's quite a long story. And also, actually, so that's also why the the police fought and the prosecution why Terry put that advert in the paper because it actually came out. I think either the day Terry got killed or the day before it actually came out in the paper. Then, and the police fought that and the prosecution that he put that into the paper because he was basically high on LSD and drugs and he didn't really know what he was doing. Wow. Which is why, because they said that it wasn't normal for that to happen. But, it, yeah, and we did agree at the time. It was a bit odd, didn't we? But then we also said yeah. Facebook didn't exist and people did random stuff in the 90s, didn't they? No, that is speculation, obviously. But, um, but yeah. So this is quite a longer story than normal. So I skipped over the trial, but I gave most of the detail in the actual story. So you haven't missed anything, everyone. Okay. So what do you think of this one then, Rachel? Madness. Um, and I guess the tell w- was the title, um, Black Widow, because obviously, you know, we, we know that uh, we know a murder's been committed quite early on. And uh, and yeah, so it, absolutely crazy story. And like, I guess the the difficulty detectives have with these kind of cases is cutting through all the lies and the he said she said like must be painful mustn't it putting your putting the prosecution case together when there's like so so much material to go through disproving some of these crazy theories and what people were willing to say about each other and that they'll well probably to a certain extent mother son aren't going to but they'll definitely throw the hitman under the bus, won't they? Um, and, yeah. and and he, he has no allegiance to them. Um, so he's going to say what, what he needs to about them. It's, it, yeah, crazy case. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, from my point of view, Terry was obviously not a nice person anyway. He, while well, there's ever no proof, I think he probably was conning old women out of money because several old women came forward, but the police couldn't prove anything that he had done the same thing to them so that makes me sad yeah so i think he was definitely coming out calling old women and he 100 percent was committing de- domestic abuse on gene so no one deserves to die but he was obviously wasn't a very nice person now no one deserves to be on the receiving end of domestic abuse ever so obviously gene should never have to suffer that but a, she planned to kill him for his money before they married and before he started hitting her and abusing her. That doesn't make it right, but it means no. that that's not the reason why she did it. And she could have left him. It was domestic, domestic abuse, but she was brave enough to go to the police and brave enough to go to the neighbours. So this wasn't something that was happening hidden behind closed doors, if you get no. me. People knew yeah. about it. 
Um, and she also knew that he was conning women out of the money. So she wasn't entirely innocent in this. So I don't know. I think in the end, it was really weird because like Robert would go on to marry someone while he was in prison. And like the, I think she wore like a black wedding dress and they had like a wedding cake that had satanic symbols on it and stuff like that. Oh, wow. Um, but yeah, so it, it's, I think that it was just really odd all around. Um, yeah. I don't know what to say to this, but other than... Fucking sounds it. Yeah. So shall I wrap this up up then, Rachel? Yeah. Yeah, I can't believe uh, it's been... like We've been re- recording for over an hour, so uh, yeah, I think it's it's time to wrap it up. So this has been Season 3, Episode 18, called The Black Widow. And if it's safe for you to do so, I'd like you to relax. Close your eyes and picture the scene. You know... When you're out and about, Rachel. And sometimes you're sure you keep seeing the same person over and over. But you don't even know them. Next time you or our listeners, you think that happens, ask yourself. Is there a sinister reason behind it? Is there someone planning to kill you? Dun, 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 dun. Indeed. So thank you, everyone. Next week, we are going to be cover our very first ever case from Northern Ireland. So I look forward to probably getting a few names wrong there. But yes, um, thank you for listening. And we shall see you all next week. Stay happy. Uh, th- thanks, guys. Yeah, speak to you all next week. Bye. Bye.